Good evening, and welcome to today's edition of The Climate Report for Thursday, September 28, 2023. The Climate Report airs the second and fourth Thursday of every month here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org. My name is Martin Webb, and today we're going to cruise through some quick headlines, talk about the possible impacts of the federal government shutdown on the climate efforts and the environment, and then close with a longer piece about what the climate is trying to tell us through the voice of our insurance companies. One of the things that I encourage is um, when people have something interesting that they uh, that they want me to report on, you can send an email to climatereport at kvmr.org. And I'm a big fan of uh, Rick Sharkey, who has been involved in KVMR a long time, including being on the board of directors. He sends me regular headlines and links and emails. And one of the things that, uh, that I like about his flow of info to me is um, he sends me the climate page from Apple News. And I myself will go to Google sometimes and just type in climate change or any search engine and type in climate change, see what the latest news is. That's how I collect some of the things I bring to the airwaves. But uh, for anyone that's in, interested in the, the bigger picture, because I try to focus on stories that are really honing in on our specific needs and interests here in our area. So I oftentimes am not hitting the big headlines, and there's an awful lot of news out there. So um, using a search engine and just typing in climate change can be really valuable and interesting. And uh, for example, here's some of the headlines off of Apple News. Apple News has a, uh, a page for just climate news, and this is some of the headlines um, from the Washington Post, what is a zero-emission building? The White House has an answer. Um, from Bloomberg Businessweek, 12 climate tech companies building a net-zero world. From, also from Bloomberg, is van life sustainable? The reality of eco-friendly off-grid living. Uh, headline in Popular Science, the EPA wants to tighten up their zero-emission building definition. From NBC, a headline here says, Spanish language misinformation about renewable energy spreads online, according to a report. That's right. Spanish language misinformation about renewable energy spreading online. That's headline from NBC. Um, some others related to climate solutions. A Vox has a headline that says, Scientists will unleash an army of crabs to help save Florida's dying reef. And then a fascinating article that I read this week uh, was published in The Guardian about the plastic-eating bacteria that could change the world or you might be interested in uh, CT Insider. It says, Yale students have found a way to turn banana waste into leather. Um, grist headline, cleaning up aluminum will be critical to a low-carbon future, and on and on. So um, there are all sorts of uh, ways that you can stay in tune in, in addition to listening to the Climate Report. Um, and sometimes just a flat-out um, search engine or some sort of news aggregating service will do that for you, which is what I consider myself uh, a news aggregator for you. And let me talk a little bit next, though, about the, uh, the possible looming shutdown, because while it's not breaking news that Congress is dysfunctional, um, it is interesting news when we are talking about it in relation to climate action, especially because last year was the big Climate Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. And fortunately, a lot of the funding for that was built into the act, so it's not part of the regular um, budget appropriations. But then there is a lot of it that is possibly um, going to be stuck. So I went to uh, a couple different places. Matter of fact, when I did a, uh, a search online, I discovered that there was some great reporting back in 2019 
December 2018, January 2019 was the last big government shutdown, the longest ever, 35 days. And there was reporting then about the impacts to environmental research and climate work. Um, you could uh, find info from Scientific American, National Geographic. The last time that we had a shutdown and it went 35 days, you may remember there were stories about national parks being hit hard, um, places like Joshua Tree in Yosemite, um, overflowing human waste from toilets, piles of uh, trash strewn everywhere, damage to nature, Joshua trees being cut down, vandalism. So there's a real serious challenge and issue when, uh, you know, in addition to all of the other hurt that is going on, I thought it might be interesting to chat about the angle from uh, our climate concerns. So here's a brief piece from the Ocean Conservancy that says four reasons why a government shutdown would be bad for our ocean. It says, in the halls of Congress, legislators are at a standstill on funding the federal government for the next fiscal year. No funding agreement by the deadline of Sunday, October 1st, means the government, including agencies like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also known as NOAA, shuts down. NOAA is a big deal when it comes to climate data and information, by the way. It says, these events have far-reaching effects well outside of D.C., putting undue stress on people, our economy, and our ocean. So specifically for NOAA, government shutdown keeps staff from the vital work they do every day to understand, manage, and conserve our coasts, ocean ecosystems, and marine mammals. Now, some essential functions will continue. That includes weather forecasting and nautical services for shipping. But many other functions will be severely delayed or halted altogether. NOAA has a contingency plan that outlines what stays open and what gets closed. And essentially, a shutdown could mean that NOAA, as an entire department of the federal government, would go from 11,500 civilian employees, 11,500 on a normal day at NOAA, they would go down to less than 100. And um, Ocean Conservancy says, here's a look at the top four reasons why a shuttered government would be bad for our ocean. Number one, a government shutdown will delay important initiatives to address climate change after a record-setting hot summer for the ocean, NOAA's leadership to address the impacts of climate change has never been more important. Yet a shutdown would stall many efforts to do so. NOAA will severely slow or completely halt the review, approval, and distribution of funds from grant programs, as well as for projects outlined under the Inflation Reduction Act. So a lot of the uh, bureaucratic review and, and the processes that gets the funding out from last year's Inflation Redu Reduction Act will potentially grind to a halt, which means they won't be able to get some of that funding out. Some of it will be protected, some of it won't. They also continue by saying NOAA will also stop processing permitting applications during a shutdown, which includes critical offshore wind environmental permits that would delay these projects even further. Um, so in addition to shutting down initiatives to address climate change, number two reason that it would be bad for the oceans and the environment, a government shutdown would stall fisheries management. For fisheries in federal waters, a government shutdown likely cause a suite of delays and inconveniences. And, and more importantly, funding again from the Inflation Reduction Act that's intended for climate-ready fisheries initiatives will not be distributed at all. So again, this is impacting the ability to act on the climate bill last year. And it demonstrates again the push and pull of, uh, of politics. It says it's important to note that some fisheries management services will still operate even at a reduced level, and U.S. Coast Guard services and law enforcement patrols will continue to ensure that overfishing 
doesn't happen. But climate-ready fisheries initiatives, um, that will come to a standstill. And a government shutdown will result in fewer resources for cleanup after a hurricane. While NOAA's services to monitor our weather systems and provide warnings on weather issues like hurricanes and tsunamis are considered essential and will still operate, other programs which come into play after disasters will run with a shoestring crew. That's right, NOAA, which we've gotten used to giving us the hurricane predictions. Um, we're familiar with those maps that show where they're going to crash into the continent and as they increase in size and category. All that comes from NOAA. But we're also um, learning that NOAA does a lot after disasters. For example, they have something called the Marine Debris Program, which helps clean up after disasters, which includes removing derelict vessels and other large debris. But in during a shutdown, it would be unable to do its job. So we need to just hope that if there's a shutdown, that it's not long. And if it is long, that there are no hurricanes or disasters. And lastly, government shutdown will put a hard stop on NOAA's ocean research. Um, that's the biggest takeaway as far as the climate impacts from a shutdown. You know, we've gotten used to data being automatically computerized. You'd think, oh, if, if humans are laid off of their jobs temporarily, we'll still be collecting the data and harvesting it. So it's not a big deal that humans won't be there. And it turns out that's not quite true, especially when it comes to very remote locations where there isn't internet access. A lot of times it's humans that are recording the readings from different things around the world and uh, and analyzing them and so there will actually be potentially gaps in data that will be lost um, in time so that's uh some of the interesting news uh there's also a great article by heatmap um, heatmapnews.com called where a government shutdown could really hurt biden's climate agenda but let's turn to insurance we're going to close today's climate report with a subject that is probably a little bit more salient to people here local into the Nevada County listening area. And I want to start with the context that, depending on how you measure it and when you measure it, Nevada County as a population tends to either be the whitest or one of the whitest counties and, and has the oldest or one of the oldest populations as a county in California. And that's in large part due to our natural resources and then scenic beauty and a lot of people come here um, from the the socal area southern california and they talk about the four seasons it's always been a beautiful place to live because you can experience the four different seasons so it's been a, a great retirement area for folks who can enjoy being close to nature and experience those seasons they might not get otherwise in the big cities but as we've seen now with climate change and the impacts that were predicted and we're now seeing, it's uh, now turned into what I call an extreme retirement zone. Those four seasons are now uh, wintertime uh, blizzards, springtime uh, rivers are swollen and flooded. Um, during the summer, there's heat waves. During the fall, there's fires and smoke. And it's becoming more challenging, more dangerous, and more expensive to live here in an extreme retirement zone. I myself finally uh, have felt the pinch of the fire insurance calamity that have been befalling most property owners. And while I'm not a property owner, my rent went up hundreds of dollars recently as a result of the, um, the insurance issues plaguing a climate-threatened um, area. So for those of you that have been feeling that pinch and experiencing it, 
This article was very fascinating and relevant, and I'd like to read the whole thing. It's uh, written by Juliet Kayem, and it was published in The Atlantic. And it's titled, What Your Insurer is Trying to Tell You About Climate Change. She says, insurers are trying to send a message. The government is trying to suppress it. Her article starts off, having worked for decades in conservation nonprofits, Beth Pratt, who lives high in the Sierra foothills in Mid Pines, California, understands how climate change is putting her home at ever greater risk. Her community is experiencing what she calls climate whiplash, forest fires, record heat, massive snow dumps, mudslides, rock slides, and even a tornado. When Pratt, now 54, bought her 1,400-square-foot house back in 1999, she thought the setting was ideal, on a big lot near Yosemite National Park. As recently as a decade ago, she told me by Zoom one recent morning, she didn't particularly worry about wildfires, a problem that now plagues her area with disturbing frequency. Pratt said she has been forced to evacuate three times. Making her best effort at coexisting with fire, as she put it, Pratt had metal roofing installed atop her house. To clear combustible material from around its perimeter, she learned how to cut trees with a chainsaw and to carefully incinerate heaps of wood debris. She said, I finally got comfortable doing my own burn pile, which took me a while. I mean, lighting a fire can be a little scary, right? Pratt has gone to enormous lengths to protect her house. She has a 2,500-gallon well tank with a fire hose hookup and added new metal decks to replace her wood ones. Because of these efforts, she reports, she's passed the defensible space inspections recommended by the state fire department. She said, this home, which is my home, I would work six jobs to keep. To all state, Pratt's longtime home insurer, her resolve appears to be irrelevant. The company dropped her as a customer in July, she says. Given her professional expertise in environmental matters, Pratt is the California Regional Executive Director of the National Wildlife Federation. She figured that growing climate risks might mean higher bills for insurance, but she wasn't prepared to lose her coverage entirely. She told me, I have an MBA. I'm not anti-business. Just raise my rates. Citing privacy concerns, Allstate declined to comment on her case. As climate-related disasters grow in frequency and intensity, major home insurers in some locations are concluding that no premium, or at least no premium that customers are willing to pay and state regulators are likely to permit, will cover the potential losses. Earlier this year, Allstate and California's largest insurer, State Farm, announced that they would hold off on writing new policies for homes in the entire state of California. From 2019 to 2022, listen to this. This is a statistic that's important to hear. From 2019 to 2022, the, the last few years of these major, major fires, remember the campfire was in uh, early November, sparked in early November 2018. And then from 2019 on uh, were the mega fires year after year. From 2019 to 2022, the article continues, payouts to homeowners there in California 
more than doubled, but premium revenue from customers increased by only a third. That's according to industry data reported by the Wall Street Journal. So for those of you that have been thinking about how this is penciling for the insurance companies, that's how it hasn't been. In the last few years with these new wildfires, they've been paying twice as much out to homeowners, but only collecting 33% more in premiums. So upside down, and they can see that um, it's not going to stop. That's just uh, my personal aside. Going back here to the article, it says, rising home insurance rates reflect a lot of factors. Real estate costs, building supply prices, the whims of global financial markets, and yes, corporate bean counters desire to maximize profits. But more and more, homeowners are also paying for the damage that climate change will cause to their property. And they should be paying. If the continuing risk of fires, hurricanes, and other weather-related disasters isn't enough to make Americans think carefully about how and where to build a home, perhaps the rising cost of insurance might concentrate their mind. Yet policies at all levels of government suppress the signal that insurers are sending. That's certainly true in deep blue California. Even as prominent politicians there take pride in acknowledging climate risks, the state's insurance regulation system is built to discourage premium hikes. In many ways, that bias is justifiable. And not only in California. Many people live in vulnerable areas, partly as a result of past racial or economic discrimination. They buy homes in flood-prone areas because more privileged people own all the higher ground. A lot of Americans are underinsured because of genuine hardship and suffer more than their wealthier counterparts do from, from uncompensated losses. But lower-income people also suffer disproportionately if coverage isn't available at all. In California, insurance companies are prohibited from using statistical modeling to assess future fire risks when setting rates. I'm going to say that again because this is an important piece of news to be aware of. In California, insurance companies are prohibited from using statistical modeling to assess future fire risks when setting rates. Premium increases must instead be based on the insurer's loss history, not on the growing likelihood of serious fires. So again, it's sort of uh, another way to say it is uh, under California law, their insurance rates have to be based on the past and uh, not the future. And the future, as uh, we know, according to scientists and what we're experiencing now, is not going to be like the past. The state's pro-consumer rules can't hold off reality forever, the article continues. After Allstate dropped her, Pratt patched together coverage from other private insurers and from what's called the FAIR plan, California's public insurer of last resort. But she said she's now paying twice as much as in the past for coverage that's less comprehensive. Certain regions of the country have long been prone to tornadoes, hailstorms, hurricanes, or other weather-related disasters. But this summer, the dire signs of a climate crisis seem to have multiplied. July was the hottest month ever recorded. A rare tropical storm swept into Southern California. Wildfires tore through a historic town on the Hawaiian island of Maui. 
Fires in Canada brought dangerous levels of smoke to much of the northeastern United States. Roy Wright told me recently, Mother Nature is busting through the front door of American families. Now the CEO of the Institute for Business and Home Safety, a research group funded by insurers, Wright previously served in senior roles at FEMA during the Obama and Trump administrations, and at one point ran the federal government's flood insurance program. Every state has some sort of a public insurance system, like California's Fair Plan, for homeowners who can't get coverage on the private market. These systems of last resort, however, are becoming insurers of first resort. After Hurricane Ian led to devastating losses in Florida last year, smaller insurance companies went bankrupt trying to satisfy claims. And over the past two years, the state's insurance system, called Citizens Property Insurance Corporation, has doubled its number of policyholders. It now covers about 13% of the homeowner's insurance market in the entire state of Florida. Is this sustainable? Professionals in my field, and again, this is the person writing for The Atlantic. This is an article by Juliette Kayem. Professionals in my field, disaster preparedness have one thing in common with insurers' risk assessment experts. We both spend a lot of time telling people things they don't want to hear. I should note here that in promoting my book, The Devil Never Sleeps, in recent months, I gave paid speeches at two small insurance industry events. The right's preferred form of denial is to brush off the importance of climate change. When Donald Trump chided his Republican rival Ron DeSantis in July to, quote, get home and take care of insurance, the former president presumably wasn't telling the Florida governor to think, to rethink the low-lying state's development rules and emergency preparedness policies in light of global warming. In the past, insurers have generally been able to diversify their own portfolios to balance different risks that they take on. Historically, insurers that do business across the country could afford a bad year in one or two states. But the math becomes more challenging as disasters proliferate. The cost of reinsurance, essentially coverage that insurers take out to protect themselves against big losses, that's right, your insurance company also has an insurance company. <laughs> And that's called reinsurance. The cost of reinsurance, essentially coverage that insurers take out to protect themselves against big losses, has shot upward. So their cost of insurance has increased. And that's in large part because of growing climate risks. The article continues, insurers are regulated by states, in many cases by elected officials whose job is to make sure the companies aren't overcharging ratepayers, not to encourage long-term climate adaptation. Home insurance is expensive in Oklahoma, for example, in large part because of high winds and hail big enough to destroy roofs, and because of building rules that don't adequately take that threat into account. In 1988, California voters passed what's known as Proposition 103, which subjected certain auto and property insurance rate hikes to state review. Consumer advocates argue that the insurance industry makes billions of dollars in profits in the state, and they've recently accused Allstate and State Farm of bullying the California Insurance Commissioner, Ricardo Lara, into going along with excessive rate increases. 
In a statement, Allstate told me that it has, quote, paused new homeowner insurance policies because the ability to adjust prices quickly in California is not an option due to Proposition 103. Another possibility, though, is that climate-related risks are becoming apparent faster than the state's regulatory system can take them into account, lulling the public into complacency about the climate crisis. Says Erwin Michel Kerjan, a McKinsey partner who focuses on insurance matters and co-wrote the book At War with the Weather, he told me, quote, risk has a price. And by not acknowledging that price, homeowners can't understand that risk. The upshot of American disaster relief policy as a whole has been to extend the status quo no matter what. Jesse Keenan, a Tulane University urban planning professor who studies climate change and the built environment, expresses some frustration with consumer advocates who view the rising cost of insurance coverage as a, quote, power play by the industry. He told me, it often is. But what consumer advocates don't acknowledge is the culpability of a lot of different actors, local governments that do not strengthen land and zoning use, state legislators who pass laws making it harder to place obligations on homeowners, and a federal government that writes big, unconditional checks. So there's a lot of blame to go around. Well, some of that blame apparently includes the 1988 Stafford Act. That's the current mechanism by which a president can declare an emergency, whose incentive structures for disaster relief can work against the very climate resiliency needed to protect homeowners. It was adopted in 1988 at a time when disasters that required federal assistance were considered random flukes, the kind of event that could stretch a state's ability to respond but wasn't likely to recur. The relief generally discourages using the money to fundamentally alter how individuals behave, let alone how local and state governments function. In addition, after the largest disasters, Congress will typically approve multi-billion dollar relief funds as it recently did after Hurricane Ian in Florida. That money is helpful to people in need, but it does far too little to encourage communities to defend themselves against future losses. Some lawmakers criticize these aid packages, but promptly change their mind when disaster strikes their own constituents, as Senator Rand Paul, an opponent of hurricane relief bills, did when tornadoes devastated parts of Kentucky. And again, as an aside, what what she's saying there is that um, with a lot of the disaster relief, it's intended to just build things back exactly the way that they were, as opposed to taking advantage of the opportunity and situation to change how things are being built and where people are living. The article continues and, and wraps up here with these last two paragraphs. It says, protecting people in harm's way is, I would argue, an essential part of the government's job, but public officials are also shirking their responsibility to not leave communities vulnerable again and again. Keenan recognizes that people are tied to their neighborhoods, but the present incentive structure puts its inhabitants at risk, saying, I understand people love their homes, but we should be telling them to love their kids who are at risk of future climate disasters. Insurers are probably not thinking about the safety of a homeowner's children. When they abandon coverage or increase rates because of climate catastrophes, their risk calculation is purely transactional, 
Issues around equity and fairness are not of primary import to them, but their recent assessments are the symptom of a problem, not the cause. And we should all heed their warning. And that is, living in paradise, or most anywhere else, has a cost. Climate change is real, and we need to pay. That's an article written by Juliette Kayem. She's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and the faculty chair of the Homeland Security uh, Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She's also the author of The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Again, that's in The Atlantic, an article titled, What Your Insurer is Trying to Tell You About Climate Change. And it was fascinating um, to learn that that in California, insurance companies aren't allowed to use statistical modeling to assess future fire risk. That any time that there is a, a noteworthy increase in premiums, there is a slow bureaucratic process to stop and review that, which makes it so they can't raise rates perhaps as fast as they need to in order to keep up with the accelerating fires provoked by the climate crisis. So there you have it. It is becoming more expensive to live in general, but especially in areas that are being threatened by climate-fueled fires as we are. Well, if you want a copy of that or link to that or any of the other information in today's show, you can always send an email to climatereport at kvmr.org. My name is Martin Webb. I'll be back the second Thursday in October at 6.30 p.m. with more of The Climate Report. This show, as well as previous shows, will be archived and available for re-listening and sharing at the podcast page at kvmr.org.